Hello and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon here with my friend and Chavruta Yerdena Osband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Bavakama, daf kuf hey, page 105. So we've got a whole bunch of discussions here, or dilemmas as we could present them, in the name of Rava. Um, and they feel like they're here because they are dilemmas in the name of Rava meaning Rav's presence on the daf in the topics of the daf is relevant. He raises the dilemma about, literally about, you know, something that's robbed and there's a debate over how much it's worth and who has to pay, fine. And then we've got another one. But I'm a Rav, I'm, I don't know, a third of the way, a quarter of the way down, I'm a Dalif. But I'm a Rav, I'm a Nazir shigileach v'shir shteyseh. This is a dilemma that was raised by Rava, where Rava says that the Chazal, the sages, had a case of a Nazir. Remember a Nazir, right? He shaves his head the way he was required to shave his head, but he left two hairs that were uncut. And then the Gemara here says, Lo asav lo klum. He hasn't done anything, meaning he, if you leave, if a Nazir leaves two hairs uncut, then it's as if he had a full head of hair. It's it's not, it's, it's an all or nothing enterprise. By Rava, and then Rava has a, has this dilemma, right? The dilemma is, what if he shaved, left the two hairs, excuse me, then he shaves one of them, and the other one falls out of its own accord. Then what's halacha? So in that case, Rav Achav Difti says to Ravina, he wants to understand, is Rava asking the question, about whether you could shave your head one by one by one, is that any different than somebody who shaves the entire hair, like your entire head, one hair at a time? Isn't that, and we've, and the assumption is that that does fulfill the obligation. And so then the question is like, what's going on here with this hair, this one hair that fell out, the the question of whether this would count for the Nazir. So Amalei Ravina, I'm sorry, Ravina says to Rav Acha Midifti, Lo Tzricha, no, it, the fact is we need to answer Rava's dilemma. It's a different case than the one that you're saying of one head, one hair by one hair, one by by one hair of the whole head. Because in this case, right, what if one of the hairs fell out and then he shaves the other one, which is different than if he shaved one and then the last one fell out. Meaning, he says as follows. And are we going to say that in any case, there's no hair left in the head, right? He's done. All the hair is gone. There's nothing left to shave. So maybe that means that he's fulfilled the obligation of shaving his head. Or do we say, no, that's not considered shaving because he had left those two hairs uncut. And then when he shaves the second time, he doesn't even have the two hairs to cut. So maybe that doesn't count as, as shaving. Hadar Shata. So Rava himself comes back, basically, and resolves the dilemma. Se'ar ein kan, giluach ein kan. Rava says there's no hair and there's no shaving, meaning the 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 fact that the hair is removed doesn't mean that that counts as an act of full shaving of the head. And then the Gemara says, hang on, if there's no hair, then you've got shaving. Like that was the whole point to make sure that the person is bald from his hair. So Gemara explains what Revan means is that, yes, it's true that there's no hair here. 
and there was only that one hair and it fell out, but you haven't fulfilled the mitzvah of shaving because he didn't do it all on the first go. And the second time he shaved less than the required amount, the minimal amount, so he didn't actually fulfill the, the mitzvah of shaving. And there the Gemara leaves this discussion aside and raises another dilemma in the name of Rava, which is why I think this whole section of the daf is really about the, these dilemmas by Rava. Here we go. Va'amar Rava, hare amru chavich nigba ustumash marim hitziluha. So the case is completely different from anything we've talked about, like to this point, really, right? Rava brings an example from Masachet Kalim, uh, chapter ten, where we have a barrel, an earthenware barrel that was punctured, and it was then sealed by the sediment that's in the con- in the inside the barrel, and because that sediment seals the bottle, the bottle, the barrel, they it. Fu- fundamentally saves it from becoming rendered tame impure in the when it comes in contact with ritual impurity. It says it straight up. It saves it. It saves it. It preserves it from literally preserves it from coming in contact with a de, with a an impure item. By Rava, agaf mahu. So Rava's dilemma is as follows: What if the you seal half the hole? Then what is the halacha? Do we say, well, that hole is not large enough? to allow ritual impurity to get into the barrel, and so we call it sealed? Or do we say, well, the hole used to be big enough to allow the impurity to get into it, and so therefore, once it's not sealed completely, it still could be, you know, it can still have that status of not being considered sealed, which would in fact be a technical problem for things, you know, coming in contact with with impurity. So it's the same kind of structure where Rav Yemar says to Rav Ashi, meaning they're not in dialogue directly with Rava. He says, isn't this the halakha that's specifically in our Mishnah? That's the case, right? Meaning you've got a barrel that was punctured. It's sealed by the sediments. And then the sediments save the whole thing. So the Gemara goes on to explain that if it was not sealed by that sediment and instead you plugged the hole with, a, let's say, a vine, right, that's the example that's brought as Mora, then the inside of the, the stuff that's inside of the barrel still is at risk of get, becoming impure unless you then smear clay around the uncovered parts of the hole. And if you were to have two vines to plug up the hole, then even then the content, like it's technically sealed, but it's still potentially susceptible to becoming tame until you smear that clay from the sides inward between one vine and the next. Meaning the fact that these are vines, which are like, you know, living plants, it's insufficient to be, um, to really seal up, um, to seal up the barrel um, against the potential contamination from impurity. So Rav Yemer explains the reason that you have to, um, put that clay there is to make it um, impossible for it to collect to to, con- to contact to get the the ritual impurity. And so the Gemara says, but one second, if he didn't smear that clay over those uncovered sections, aren't the contents not going to be protected? Um, why doesn't that become the case? Like Rava mentioned to begin. 
And so the man says, well, understand that when you plug up the hole with a vine, it's as if you sealed half of the hole. And so there's no big difference really between the hole that is sealed halfway and a hole that is plugged up with a vine halfway. So Rava should not, like he shouldn't have this dilemma to begin with because we already have a parallel case that has the same exact halacha. So Rava's question is not really like a pressing dilemma or even a chiddush, even something, an innovative kind of question. So the, but the sages as a group, they actually um, rebut this. Amri, hachi hashta, hatam ilo marach lokai, agaf chatsia, bamide de kai kai. So this, the, they say like this, how can you actually compare these two cases? Meaning, if he doesn't smear the clay amongst the vines, then the vine is not going to stay steady in place. And so that's going to be, that's an actual open hole. However, where you're talking about sealing, you know, putting a cock, putting some kind of, of plug into the hole, at least halfway into the hole, then you've actually sealed up half of the hole, like legitimately. And that was Rava's question. And so therefore, and we're left with the open question of Rava, but it's upheld against the vine suggestion that it's really the same parallel case. And then the Gemara goes on to have another dilemma from Rava, Vama Rava, this should sound familiar to everybody, right? Because somebody who steals chametz and then, you know, Pesach happens while the chametz is in the thief's possession. He wants to come and give it back and say, Look, listen, you can only just have the value of what it is, which is no value at all. By Rava, and Rava's dilemma is, what happens if the robber takes that false oath about the robbery? Then what's Alecha? Do we say me amrina kevandi mignav by shlumile me mamonaka kafarle? Oh, deal mahashti mi hahamanach, but afraba almahu, velo kafarle mamona. Do we say that if it had been stolen from the robber, then the robber would have to pay the initial value of the bread back to the original owner? Because he can't say, Harashal Khalafanach. He can't say, here, take what's yours, because it's already been gone. Right, so then he like it. It makes a much more complicated situation. Or do we say no? While the chametz was in the robber's possession, we say it was ka'afra It was made into dust because it's chametz on Pesach, and therefore you can't get benefit from it, which we know. And therefore he hasn't denied that claim to begin with, because he never had it because it was, or at least at that time he didn't have it. And so then it's not a false oath, and then you don't have to worry about it being a false oath. Now the gemara is going to go track this through, and again, kind of bother Rava about whether he really needed to ask this question and what his answer is. I'm not going to take it that far, but I'm just very intrigued that it's not as if this stuff were not rich enough within the original cases of the theft and the chametz and so on, that we suddenly need Nazir and we suddenly need a an impure barrel. Like, it, you know, let's put all of Rubba's statements right here. Yeah, I mean, it's not it, it's not organized by topic; it's organized by person. But it feels very digressive here. Right? It's like yes, exactly. That's well said. Um, and even like particularly the Nazir one, I mean, I, I feel like almost that same passage probably appears somewhere in Nazir, right? If you leave one hair, two hairs, the shaving, I kind of mm -hmm. almost want to go back and see is there a parallel text to that. Um, I'm going to move on, and there's more stuff to pay attention to with the, you know, with all these uh, statements of Rava and, and um, but I'm going to move past there. And uh, the Gemara wants to talk about the law, the, the halakha about witnesses who falsely deny under, they take a shvua, they take an oath, and they say that they didn't have any knowledge of testimony that could help 
uh, somebody who was in the Besden, and that wasn't true. So they took a false oath, basically. So they quoted Bryce here, Tanya, Amar Ben Azai. So Ben Azai says, remember, Ben Azai is one of the four Tanaim who goes with Rabbi Akiva into Pardes. He's not mentioned as a rabbi, but, um, you know, but we do see him quoted. Shalosh Vuot There are three, uh, you know, cases basically with these types of false oaths, right? And we're talking specifically about a witness to a, a, a lost object, okay? And so this, th- and these are the types of uh, situations that occur when the witness swears that he doesn't have information about the lost object. Right? So let's say he had recognized the lost article, the lost object, but not its finder. Okay? So in other words, the witness saw somebody's, you know, book or somebody's animal, right? Um, in, in somebody else's property. Um, but um, but he didn't know who actually found it. Okay? Like, in other words, he doesn't remember where he saw the item. He doesn't remember who found it. Okay? The motza'ah, the lokba, right? Or he knows the finder, but he didn't recognize the object itself. So in other words, he knows that somebody found, let's say, a lost animal or a book or something like that, but he doesn't know whose item that actually was. Loba the Lobamotsa. Or let's say he recognized he didn't recognize the object or the person who found it itself, right? So the, those are the you know, so those would be three circumstances under which in which somebody, you know, claims, oh, I don't have any information that I could share, and they take a false oath. Um, and, uh, you know, and say like, oh, I don't have information, but actually they did have information. They either had information about the fi- the object itself or they had information about the finder. And then there's this very strange last case that says they didn't have information about the, the object or the finder. So the obvious question is, okay, well then what information are they holding back on? It seems that they don't have any information. So the Gemara asks this, lo baba lo right? What, you know, neither the object or the finder right? So then he swore truthfully because he doesn't have any information. What did he witness? He didn't see anything. So the Gemara says, Am I ba umotza? No, so the last case is, is that he actually recognized the object and the finder. In other words, that case doesn't make any sense. So we have to change the brisa, which again is a technique that we see used sometimes with a Mishnah or brisa where the, there's no plausible explanation so the Gemara is willing to say the text itself is not correct. It's a corrupt text and it's a text that we have to change. So then the Gemara says, Okay, what's the actual, what, like, how do we apply this law uh, that Ben Isaac quoted here? So now they're going to give, the Amorayim will actually start to argue this out or discuss it. Rav Amai Amar Rabbi Hanina. So Rav Ami, sorry, uh, Rav Ami Amar Rabbi Hanina. So Rav Ami said in the name of Rabbi Hanina, Hanina, leave Tor, right? He mentions these examples for the exemption, meaning that if a win- the, the witness would be exempt from being, to- you know, from being a false oath in each of these questions, in each of these cases, but Shmuel says, no, these cases are mentioned because it actually shows that he's liable, right? Um, now, that becomes a question again, how could that be? And some of Farsham actually explained that maybe it's just the last case that he would be liable for. So Gemara is going to explain the, the, the reasoning here. Uplukta Dahani tonight, right? They disagree in the the issue that is the, the root of the dispute of these Tanaim, the Tanya, and it's taught in Abraisa, Hamashbia Okay. If one has a single witness testify for him, 
right? And that witness, you know, falsely says, you know, denies having any knowledge of the testimony. Pator, right? The witness doesn't have to bring a, an offering later on, okay? Because, uh, right, you, you normally bring a chatat if you're a witness who withheld uh, some type of testimony that would have helped the litigant win um, money. But when there's just a single witness, right, his testimony wouldn't have helped the person because you need to have two witnesses. So even if he's found to have lied later on, he doesn't have to bring a korban. He doesn't bring a chatas, okay? So uh, so that's, he's patur. But Rabbi Elazar, but Rabbi Shimon, mechayev. But Rabbi Elazar, the son of Rabbi Shimon, holds that actually the witness would be chayev. In other words, swearing falsely is swearing falsely, and it could have caused him to lose money. So therefore, he still needs to, um, he still needs to, uh, he still needs to bring the chatas. But my, uh, so that's, uh, so the Gemara goes on to explain this a little more. But my kamaflige, right? What is this machlokas really about with these kanayim? Mar Savar, one person holds, and this is Rabbi Lazar, uh, the son of Rabbi Shimon, holds. Something that can cause benefit of money is considered like the actual money itself. So in other words, if there was a potential monetary value, then it's like the actual value. So since this testimony could have caused the litigant to actually win money, right? Then it's like testimony where he actually did win money. And so therefore, even a single witness, an Ada Chad, right? If they take a shvua about withholding any type of testimony that could have helped the litigant, he's actually chayev for, uh, to bring a chata. Um, and then the other opinion, Umar Savar Lev Kamamondami, right? Whereas the Tanakama holds, it's not considered like actual money. That's not actually uh, what the money is actually like. And so how do they apply this to, uh, you know, Ravami in the name of Rabbi Hanina and Shmuel, right? So sh they also are having a disagreement about this issue. Shmuel would agree with the opinion of Rabbi Elazar, the son of Rabbi Shimon, right? And he would basically say that when a witness withholds testimony that could have helped somebody get their lost object, he has to bring a, a, an offering, he has to bring a, 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 a chatas. And Rabbi, Han, Rabbi Ravami, in the name of Rabbi Hanina, would agree with the Tanakama that the person would be actually uh, exempt. So I, I think it's interesting to see, uh, and this sort of, you know, is the end of, of, of this particular section here, um, but it's interesting to see that in a typical Gemara fashion, you know, that what Ben Azai talks about is that, you know, there is a possibility where you have like half of the information. You don't have the full information and yet you probably should have still shared it. And the question being when Ben Azai makes that statement, is it to get the false witness off or is it to make him that is actually Chayv? And it's really not when you read that actual Brysa, right? Like you're not completely sure uh, what it's actually talking about. So I, I find this whole case to be, you know, very interesting, especially the idea of having a one witness when normally you need to have two. Yeah, I find that to be perhaps like the driving interesting element here because it kind of, it says we've got a different kind of case. Yeah, exactly. And I think also the piece of like, that they really have to sort of like reread that that Brysa in a totally different way. They have to rework that last clause I always find when the Gemara does that to be fascinating, like that they're just willing to be like, nope, that's basically a corrupt text and we're going to have to just cha change that text. Right. And the, when they're willing to do that and when they're not willing to do that. Yeah, it's always interesting. I, I'm sure someone's written a dissertation on this. We're not going to get to that 
doing that, Naomi, but but I am interested to understand that better. Or like go read the chosen, right? Like that's a good portion of the promise, the chosen, the promise. There is some good discussion of textual emendation in that. Oh, okay. Well, that's our DAPS discussion for the day. Rank is reviews on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this app on our Talking Time on Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. 